Uh, we are in our second week of a series on prayer. And uh, last week we kind of broke it up uh, with our baptism celebration as we uh, saw 14 people uh, go public with their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, and so that's a really special thing. Uh, it's really special because uh, this year we baptized about 60 people. And uh, we've, uh, we've been a part of over uh, a couple of hundred of those in the last uh, four and a half years. And so it's always awesome to be able to see what God is doing uh, through his people. Uh, as we grow <clears throat> as people, we go public with our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, the natural steps are for us to begin to grow in God's word uh, and to discern his plan in our lives. And so we go from milk to meet, and that's a process, but as we grow, we begin to uh, in, inhabit some what we call spiritual disciplines in our life. We learn the, to pray, we learn to study God's Word, we learn to meditate on God's Word, we learn uh, lots of different things, fasting, all of these different things are important to the life of the Christian. Uh, but we thought that in this season of our church that it would be important for us to kind of uh, focus on the idea of prayers. The second time uh, since Stone Points began that we've taken the time and done a series on prayer. Uh, but today we're going to just continue that. And kind of the definition of prayer is this. Uh, it is a uh, literally a wrestling, a conversing with God that becomes an encounter. So it's, it's literally beginning this, uh, this communication with a holy God that becomes a full-fledged encounter in our life. And uh, we kind of uh, closed a couple of weeks ago with a couple of things. And I'm going to put them up here on the screen for you. But we shouldn't see prayer as a means to get what? More from God. But what? An opportunity to get more of God himself. And so I think so many of us, we oftentimes wonder, why is God not hearing me? Why is God not answering? Why is he not responding? And I think oftentimes we approach God with saying, God, give me more. It's in a sense, a genie in a bottle solution. God, I have this dilemma. I have this problem. I need this. I need that. And we approach him. And we say, God, uh, we're, and we're not ashamed to do it. huh? We are not ashamed to come before a holy God and say, hey, I need this. I need this. I need this. But we, we don't see prayer as a conversation that becomes a full-fledged encounter. Our goal in prayer oftentimes more than not, at least for me, is not to have an encounter with God, but to get something from God, right? Because we pray when we need Him, right? And then here's the last one I wanted to, to kind of give you, is a failure to pray is not breaking some religious rule. It's a failure to treat or even see God as God, okay? It's not just that you're breaking some religious rule, some sanction, God's going to slap you on the wrist. No, you're just, you're just failing to see God is God. Why? Because when we don't pray, we assume that we're a good enough God and we can control our lives just fine. Right? And so that's why we pray. Uh, Edmund Clowney, uh, Edmund P. Clowney, he said, The Bible does not present the art of prayer, but it presents the God of prayer. And I think so many of us, we want to determine the art of prayer. And so uh, today what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, do something that I haven't done since we started Stone Point, And I'm going to show you what Jesus did and what he encouraged us to do. And in Matthew chapter 6, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. He gives us a pretty simple plan for prayer. And I know that as we pray, we approach him. We often say, you know, I would really like to see what God has for me. And I remember uh, reading when uh, a group of people asked C.S. Lewis, C.S. Uh, Lewis, hey, do you pray that you may change the will of God? 
And he said, by no means. I pray that God's will would change me. And there's a totally different difference there. Do you pray that you hope that you can change God in some way, manipulate him in some way? Or do you say, God, I want to join you in what you're doing. God, you want to receive honor and glory for yourself. God, you want to work through a variety of people, circumstances, and means. And God, I want to hear from you. I want to see what you're doing. And I want to join you in that work. That's what prayer is all about. So let's pray together and let's ask God to just impart this truth to us that we may see his will and his purpose for us in our lives. Father, we love you and we thank you um, that you are a good and gracious God. That, Lord, that you even allow us to enter your presence. That, Father, that through Jesus Christ, the Son, our high priest, the mediator on our behalf, we have the right to call you Father. That we have the right as adopted sons and daughters, been brought out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ, that we can call upon you in any hour, at any time, in any location. And not only will you hear, but Lord, you are going to respond. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the magnitude of having an encounter with you. That, Lord, we don't gain access to you because we have some priest or some pastor that grants us access. But, Lord, we come to you because we have trusted and followed Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And, Lord, because of that, Jesus has paved the way, the path to the most holy place. And that is where you reside. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We pray that we would grasp that. And, uh, Lord, that that would be applied to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5, Jesus is going to uh, be literally kind of uh, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to address several different things. He addresses uh, fasting. He addresses prayer. And uh, then we're going to see him address a little bit more here in a few minutes. But in verse 5 of Matthew 6, it says, When you pray... So Jesus says, when you pray, you are not to be like what? The hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in synagogues on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. It had become a practice in the Jewish tradition that um, tithing, which is what Jesus addresses right before prayer, uh, prayer, fasting, All were important things to the Jew. Matter of fact, if you had the big three of spiritual disciplines, this was them. You had tithing, you had prayer, you had fasting. And one of the things that became a common uh, goal within the life of a Jew was to do these things publicly. That you would get good at externally worshiping God. That when you were to drop something in the offering plate, you made sure that it had a little ring to it, right? So you weren't going to stick a $20 bill. You were going to go to the bank and get $20 of gold coins. And you were going to make sure that when you dropped them, what? Everybody could hear it, yes? You wanted to make sure that when you prayed, that you gathered people around and you were fancy, that you had just the right words, that people thought that you were, what, wise beyond your years. And the goal was to make it a public spectacle. 
The same was true of fasting. I mean, uh, you know, Jesus gives them some pretty simple commands. Hey, hey, wash yourself. Make sure that your face is clean. Make sure that, that people don't see that you're walking around going, Oh, I just feel so terrible today. I've been fasting for weeks. But the spectacle was what they were about. And the more people that knew that they were great at tithing and fasting and prayer, the more applause they got. And what Jesus simply says right here in verse 5 is this. Hey, that's great. You get your reward in full. When they clap, that's all you get. So enjoy it. Meaning, I'm not going to lend an ear to you. I don't see your fasting as a tribute to me. And so that's why right here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses each one of these topics. Now, we're going to be just looking at prayer today since we're kind of on the topic of prayer. But the idea is this. Prayer is not meant to be an external public thing. Now, do we pray together? Absolutely. In just a few minutes, you're going to see it says, Our Father who art in heaven. I mean, you see there that prayer is meant for what? Private and public sectors. But when you're in public and you're praying together as a church body, as a journey group, the goal is not to be fancy. The goal is not even to say, I can't pray, I just don't know how. Prayer is a conversation between you and a holy God. It becomes a conversation, a wrestling that what? Is an encounter. And you don't have to be fancy. That's what Jesus says. If you want to be fancy and you want the reward and the applause of men, then you get it. But if that's not your goal, then don't worry about how fancy it is. Just pray to your heavenly Father who hears you. Matter of fact, in verse 6 it says, But when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay, that's pretty, pretty easy, right? Pastor Brian is going to teach next week, and he's going to even carry that in a little bit more. And then he says, verse 7, When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And so the goal is, is to come before God, position your heart before Him, and literally just lay it out, not with fancy words, not with liturgical principles, not with things that you just repeat, and you do the same thing every day, right? Kind of what we do at the dinner table. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, like we, have, we kind of approach it pretty quickly, and sometimes we don't even know what we're praying. Like, Lord, thank you for our food. And you're like, oh, it's just me. Thank you for my food. We're just so commonly expressing the same things over and over. It just becomes repetition. He says, no, don't let it be a repetitious time. May it be a time where it's you and your heavenly Father. And may you express the things that are on your heart. See, God is not, in, he is not concerned with your empty words. And he is not concerned with your fanciful words. So he's not concerned with your empty words, meaning that they don't have meaning. He's not concerned with your fanciful words that you mean, hey, you've written this out and you've, you've dialogued it, you've thought about it really hard, but there's no heart behind it. Matter of fact, it reminds me of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 6, you see um, the people of Israel, that they pray to God. Now, they are in a very, very difficult uh, time. Matter of fact, the prophet Hosea, uh, along with his brothers Isaiah, uh, Micah, those guys are preaching to Israel and they're encouraging them to repent. Matter of fact, they're telling them, if you do not repent, God is going to overcome you and engulf you. And matter of fact, he's going to raise up another nation. And in histor history, we see it. He raised up the Assyrians and the Assyrians engulf 
the Israelites, after the Assyrians, the Babylonians, after the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, after the Persians, the Greeks, after the Greeks, the Romans. And it's just going to begin a cycle. And what, what is so clear is this. Hosea is telling the people of Israel, if you will turn back, God will spare you. That's always been His promise to you in the covenants. If you bless me, I'll bless you. You curse me, I'll curse you. And the problem is, is that they will not turn. But listen to this prayer. I'm even going to put it up here for you. Listen to this prayer that they pray. In Hosea chapter 6, after God's giving them warning after warning, five chapters worth of warnings, rebukes, all this. Come, let us return to the Lord. Sounds good, doesn't it? For He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before Him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. That almost like when you read it, you go, man, that looks like and sounds like a prayer of repentance. The problem was is that their hearts were wrong. They thought that because they offered up some really intelligent words, that God would hear and He would respond. Almost like karma today. Because I do something good, God will repay me with good. If I do something evil, then God's going to smite me. That's the idea. Well, they think, well, hey, we're, we're kind of going the wrong way, but hey, if we just offer up this prayer of thanks and gratitude, we know that the God has stricken us, but He's going to heal us. And the problem is, is their, their prayer, though it sounds good, has no repentance to it. Their heart is far from God. Did you know that? And then you go, well, how do you know that? Well, I know that because the Assyrians are about to overthrow them. And in history, you see it's true. In the Bible, you see it's true. Why? Because although they had fanciful words, their hearts were far from God. Understand? And so Jesus' principle here in Matthew 6, 5, 6, and 7 is to go, pray in secret. Your Father in heaven hears you. When what? Your heart is right doesn't matter how fancy your words are. And then he continues, and after verse 8, uh, he says, Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. So, meaning, don't be like all those guys who go out in the public and they make it a spectacle. Just come before your Father in heaven, who Jesus has paved the way as your mediator, your high priest. He's given you access to the most holy place of God. Now pray to Him, for He hears you. Now that's pretty incredible. You understand what I'm saying? Your Father in heaven knows you, and He hears you. So don't worry about praying a fanciful prayer. Don't worry about how ignorant you think you are, or even in that matter, how intelligent you think you are. Just come to God and be who you are, who He's created to be, and say, God, here I am. This is what I've got. Do you think in His holiness He doesn't already know what you have and what you've got? You are not sharing anything new with Him. You are just moving into an encounter with the Holy God. He wants to hear from you. He wants us to know Him and to abide in Him. Yes? And so after Jesus gives those brief instructions, then He says, this is how you should pray in verse 9. So here we go. We're going to dig in. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven. Right? 
We know our Father who art in heaven. What does that mean? Our Father who is in heaven. Why does he begin this prayer in this way? I find it interesting that he uses the word our instead of my Father in heaven. It gives the idea that, that prayer is not just for you, but is what? For the body. It gives the idea that you and I probably should invite other people into the prayer circles that we have. Meaning that it would be encouraging for you and I to have other brothers and sisters who are like-minded in the faith that what would hold you accountable to your prayer life. That ought to be a question in every journey group we have. Journey group leaders, you ready? Write this down. Two questions you ought to ask every week in your journey group. How, is your, how are you reading the Word this week, and what have you learned? And how is your prayer life? Those are two great questions. Why? Because oftentimes we sit around every week in Bible studies, we end it with a prayer, and that's the first time as a group we've opened our Bibles. That's a tragedy. We ought to come, pray, our Father who art in heaven. Why in heaven? Because God is distinctly different than us. Yes? That is one of the most foundational principles of prayer, is that you are not merely praying to a man. It drives me crazy when someone says, hey, have you talked to the man upstairs? It drives me nuts. Please do not say that in front of me. He is not a man upstairs. He is a God who is distinctly different than you and I. As he said to Isaiah, Isaiah, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. You cannot perceive who I am. You and I cannot even begin to comprehend God in all of His fullness. He is in heaven, we are in earth. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 5.2 kind of gives us, us a little brief principle of this. In verse 2 it says, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. Meaning, hey, you better realize that when you come to Him in prayer, when you come to Him at all, you better make sure you know who you're coming to. It's the same principle in Isaiah, what, 6, when He says, Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people as unclean. It's the idea that they realize and perceive how great God is. And as we enter into our prayer lives, one of the greatest principles that you and I should acknowledge is this is that we are but peasants and ants before a holy God, and yet He still invites you into His story. You are but, but, but mere ants and peasants before a holy God, yet He still invites you into His story. He allows you to wrestle with Him and, and, and ultimately encounter Him. He wants to hear from you. That's an amazing thing. The only thing He warns you of in verse 1, or in and. and the very first part of this prayer, verse 9, he says, treat God as God. Understand who He is, that He is in heaven, you are on earth. And then he says, hallowed, what? Be your name. What does hallowed mean? Hallowed literally is the word holy. Holy is your name. And so as we come to God, what is one of the things that we should begin with? Adoration. You, you could really say adoration and thanksgiving. You, you could write that down right there in your Bible. So when you approach God, what do we usually begin with? Hey, God, I'm really struggling with this lady at work. And God, if you're not going to take her home, will you at least get her a new job? <laughs> right? God, I, I, we don't have a lot of money. 
we don't have a lot of money, so God, would you please get me a really good job, one that, that not only pays the bills, but God, would you, you, would you help us get out of this rent house? We need a bigger house. It sure be nice to have a better car. The thing is, is that when we come before a holy God, we ought to start with adoration and thanksgiving. If you wonder, well, how do I begin? Literally, adoration is this. As you, as children, knowing that you were once far from God, but now have been brought into a relationship with Him, that's a great place to start. God, thank you that once I was far off and in darkness, but you brought me into the marvelous light. God, thank you, Lord, that I was once lost, but Lord, I'm now found. God, thank you, Lord, that I was once lame, and that I couldn't hardly walk on my own, and yet you... You healed me, God, and now I now walk in your truth. God, thank you, Lord, that you are the wonderful counselor. Thank you, Lord, that you are the prince of peace. Thank you, God, that you are holy, holy, holy. Father, thank you that you are my Jehovah Jireh, that you are the God, our provider. Lord, thank you that you bring the rain. And Lord, you allow it to rain right now, God, on the just and the unjust. Even the evil farmer over there who keeps shooting my dogs, you let it rain on him too. And God, though I can't understand why, I thank you for that. It's understanding that he is holy, that his ways are higher than your ways, his thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and that you come before him and you just thank him. What can you thank him for? And see, naturally you go, no, no, no. You naturally thank him for your house and for your car and for your children. Right? And those are important things. But have you gone a little deeper? Thank Him for what He's done in your life. Thank, you, thank Him that He's not giving you the just punishment that you deserve for your sin. Thank you that He doesn't cast you out because of your rebellion. Thank, you, thank Him that when you go AWOL and you leave the church because you get mad at the pastor, that He doesn't just shut off the relationship with you. That He continues to invite you and call you back. Thank you that he allows you to be a part of his family, the family of God. Thank you that the family of God is not just this building and this group of people, that it goes far beyond our walls. That's hallowed be your name. It's worship and adoration. Amen? And then he says in verse 10, May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now you go, well, what do you mean your kingdom come? Well, here's what you and I need to understand. That right now, we are in a brief season called the church age. The kingdom, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God has not come. We've seen glimpses of the kingdom. We, see, we saw God raise up the people of Israel. We saw Him protect them, give covenants to them. We saw them, Him free them from the bondage and the slavery in Egypt. We saw, them give him, we saw Him give them the promised land, Canaan, Palestine. We saw them rebel against him, but ultimately he gave them rulers and judges. They go, hey, we don't really want rulers and judges. Give us a king like everybody else does. They get kings. Guess what? The kings quickly rebel. You have David and Solomon who would be among the best ones. David was the, the fullness of Israel. Solomon, again, goes downhill. Jeroboam, Rehoboam, the two sons of Solomon run it all. They split the kingdom. Then you have a bunch of evil kings after that. And they're looking for a, a, what, a better king, and they never find him. Then Jesus arrives, and they don't even what, pay any attention to him, the final king. He's there, an earthly body dwelling among them, tabernacle, 
tabernacling among them in John chapter 1 is what we see. He dwells among them, yet they did not recognize him. He says, okay, if you won't recognize me, then I'll, I'll raise up a people that will. He, recognize, he what, raises up the church and acts after you see the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then, hey, the, the, the Gospel goes forth. He raises up men and women, Gentile and Jew alike, that would love him and serve him. The church age continues until now, right? We've seen glimpses of goodness, and we've seen glimpses of evil within the church. We've seen all-out rebellion. We've seen uh, the idea throughout the years that it really wasn't about the church, and we didn't have access to God, but we had to get to him through a priest or through a king. God goes, no, 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 no. And then you had kind of the Protestant Reformation that brings everything back to the norm. You had guys like Martin Luther, Augustine, and some of those guys who go, no, 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 we have complete access to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ. That's where we are, friends. But do you know what has still not come? The reign and rule of Jesus Christ forever. But it's coming. And so what does it mean, may your kingdom come? The idea is this, is that if you and I truly know and love God, and we truly encounter Him on a daily basis through our prayer. One of the greatest hopes in our life should not be, God, give me a better job. God, give me better vehicles. But Lord God, would you position my heart that if you were to come today, I would be ready. God, may I live today in fullness of your grace, of your redemptive story. Lord, I look around our nation. I look around this world. I see depravity. I see sinfulness. I'm tired of watching the news. It's terrible. I can't pick up a paper anymore because the same thing I watch on the news. God, it's sad. We live in a sad state of affairs. And God, I don't want to live in the world. I don't want to love the world. I want to honor you. And so God, may your kingdom come now. God, bring it as soon as you're ready. But not my will, but your will be done. So meaning, what? Until you're ready, may I live faithfully as a sacrifice for you. That's the goal. And so in our prayer lives, we ought to be saying, God, help me to be faithful today. Help me to be faithful. God, you are holy. You allowed me to be a part of your story. Help me to be faithful to you today. And that's the idea. Martin Luther says this, Lord, grant us the peace to what? Endure sickness, poverty, disgrace, suffering, and adversity, and recognize that this is your divine will, and that's what? Crucifying our will. So the divine will of God is to crucify our will as we understand what He's doing. That's what it means. And you go, did Jesus do that? Yes. Matter of fact, why do we allow God to crucify our will? Because we believe He can be trusted. Understand? Like, that's the only reason I pray. God, I believe that you can be trusted. I believe that you are worthy. I believe that you can take all these matters that are dangling in my life that confuse me. But Lord, that you can put sense to them and you can put them in the proper order and perspective that God, that you can give me eyes to see and ears to hear based off of what you're doing in my life through the word. That's why we pray. Because he's trusted. He, he could be trusted. He's trustworthy. And then you go, well, what about Jesus? I mean, is Jesus trusted? I'll tell you this. Jesus, the most trustworthy part of his life, in my opinion, is not the cross and the final part of the cross. It's the moment of the Garden of Gethsemane when he trusts his own father. God, yet not my will, but thy will be done. And when he submitted himself to his father, he saved you and me. 
So can Jesus be trusted? Absolutely, because in the one shaky moment of his life, he trusted his Father for what was best. And in that, he saved all of us in one conversation. God, if there be any way that this cup could pass, may it be. But not my will, but thy will be done. That's it right there. On earth as it is in heaven, that simply means this. Lord, we long for you to establish your rule and reign. Based off of what we see, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, come, establish your rule and reign. I'm ready. We're ready. That's the idea. Amen? And then he continues on. Give us this day our daily bread. Now look, here it is. Y'all ready for this? One line of supplication. That's it. You got all these lines of the prayer, and he gives you one line of supplication. You're like, I don't even know what supplication is. Intercession is praying for others. Supplication is praying for yourself. He gives you one line of supplication here. That means you can pray. And look what he prays. He says you can pray for. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Give us enough to survive what? Today. Man, we don't, like Americans, we, don't, we struggle with this. Like, okay, God, give me enough to survive this month. Right? We're consumer-minded. We, we buy more than we can eat. We have nicer cars than we can afford, bigger houses than we can pay for. And we, we go, oh, that makes sense. Just pray for our daily No, it really doesn't make sense to us very well. We really struggle with this principle. But the idea here is, hey, give us what we need. I love in Proverbs chapter 30, 7 through 9, this is what's being asked and really prayed for, uh, a series of events here. And, and, and a gentleman says, give me two things. God, there's two things that I ask of you. And he says, one, do not refuse me before I die and keep deception and lies far from me. So that's the first one. Hey, don't refuse me and make sure that keep deception and lies far from me. So protect me while I'm alive and then have a place for me when I die. Okay, there's number one. And then number two, he says, what? And give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I may not fool, that I would, what? That I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of the Lord. You guys, just give me what I need. That's truly the idea and the concept of Philippians 4.13. What? It is by what? Christ, I can do all things who strengthens me. And right before that, the Apostle Paul says, I know what it's like to be what? Hungry. I know what it's like to be well fed. But Lord, just give me what you want me to have. For I know that in all things I can endure through you. That's the same principle here. Don't give me so much that I believe that I'm the one that, that, that gained it. Don't make me have so little that I have to go fending and, and, and get to a low level of stealing. God, just give me the portion that I need every day to serve you. That's the idea of give us this day our daily bread. Yes? Some people, uh, when they look at this prayer, and there's some debates through some great theologians, they go, well, is this speaking more metaphorically as the bread of life? Like, just give us more than a portion of Jesus Christ every day. I don't think so. Um, I truly believe that this is your one line of supplication, and, and you better ask, what, for the things you just need, 
not all the desires and wants, right? To have wisdom there. The idea really, I think, for us as the Christian is this, okay? Summing up just this portion of prayer already. Um, God, you are holy. You are worthy of my praise and adoration. God, thank you for inviting me into your story. God, may your kingdom come. God, may I live every day as if you're coming today. And Lord, may I be ready. But God, until that day comes, would you give me the things that I need to survive and to honor you and nothing more? God, help me to travel light because I know there's not much going with me. Understand? Honestly, let me just ask, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. I didn't even have this in my note. It just kind of came to me. There are some moms in here that you would love to stay home with your baby. Why can't you? Why can't you? Why can you not instruct them in those five or six meaningful years before you decide what schooling you're going to do? Why can't you do that? You don't travel light enough. The years of driving a nice car were more important than instructing your child when it finally arrived. Some of you, the, the question of you going and doing something missionally has nothing to do with time or resources. It has everything to do with money. I can't go because it costs too much. Why? I'm not going to camp there. I'm not trying to guilt you into something. I just want you to understand that's kind of where we are. Travel light, knowing that in Matthew 6, he's going to tell us just a little bit further down the road that what? Quit storing up treasures in heaven. Is it? Let me ask you a question. Here it is, Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the most that he ever talked in a sermon. Do you think it's by coincidence that he tells you what to stay focused on? And then, hey, not too long later, he says, hey, but guard yourselves from these things. So the idea is travel light. And then he moves on. And he says, and forgive us our, what, debts. This is confession. This is what many of us in this room steer clear of. Confession. The awesome thing is this. Is that Ephesians 2.13 says that what we have been now brought near by the blood of Christ. Yes? Y'all with me back there in the back? Just checking, y'all. Just checking you. Because these people in the front, I'm kind of questioning. We are brought near by the blood of Christ. Can I explain something to you? That so many people, and I don't want to offend some of you because I understand your backgrounds, where you come from, but there is nowhere in Scripture anywhere that we have to have someone else mediate on our behalf other than Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our, our debts. Okay? And so it, it's not scriptural. So here, listen to this. Isn't it awesome that I could just go to God and go, hey, God, you already know me. You saw everything I did. Yes, I'm an idiot. Yes, you know that too. And then you can just openly confess that, God, you're holy and I'm not. God, I'm prone to leave the, the God I love. Lord, here it is. This is my wickedness. This is my filth. This is, this is my shame. And here's the deal. You're not doing it for some sort of penance. You're not doing it for some sort of recognition in the kingdom. Your sins have been forgiven in totality. Past, present, and future on the cross. And so you go, well, why do you confess then? Confession is simply posturing your heart and recognizing who you are before a holy God. 
And it's also recognizing your need for a Savior. It's recognizing on a daily basis, Lord, that I continue to fall short. It truly is Romans 7. Paul saying, why is it that I continue to do the things that I know I ought not to do? And the things I know I should do, I don't do. And he goes, there's this war being waged within the body. That war will continue with you the rest of your life. But if you can stay at a place where you're positioning yourself before a holy God on a continual basis, recognizing the error of your ways, and recognizing His holiness and His ability to make things right, then you come before Him and you confess. What? Understand? Martin Luther says, the heart is not, if the heart is not right with God and cannot draw confidence from His gospel, then you're, you're, you're far off. So meaning, if coming before God and confessing is a burden that you're really having a difficult time doing that, he says it's just, a, it's just showing where you really are in your walk right now. So confession, though we're not proud of it, ought to come easily because we recognize who God is in our life. And then he says, and then what? And forgive us our debts as we have what? Forgiven our debtors. Yes? I'm going to give you a side note. I want you to go read it in Matthew chapter 18. You have the king who's gracious to, a, to one of his uh, lords. The Lord is not as gracious as what was bestowed upon him. Okay? I don't have time. I have it in my notes. I'd love to go over it, but I'm going to let you do it at home. The idea of, of this is that, hey, you and I cannot honor God, cannot receive the full abundance of his blessings if we withhold the same forgiveness that's been bestowed upon us. And I think that's one of the greatest things that's gripping the life of the believer is we have Areas and pockets of our life where we just cannot forgive someone. And yet we want this forgiveness from a gracious God. And what Jesus says is the two don't mix. You can't have both. Then he says what? And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So this is the last portion of it. And lead us not into temptation. And so then the prayer is, is, okay, God, lead us not into temptation. So the question is not, okay, God, don't tempt us. That's not the question. Do you understand? You need to make sure you know that. It's a pretty foundational part of, of the life of the Christian. Matter of fact, in James chapter 1, 13 through 15, it says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot, what? Be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Yes? But each one of us is tempted, and when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And he says, and then lust is conceived, and it gives birth to sin. So the idea of this, this here is not, God, don't tempt me. That's not what he's saying. He says, look, and lead us not into temptation. Do you remember Peter being tempted and he denied Christ three times? It's almost the idea of saying, God, lead me not into temptation. Lord, protect me from the snare of the evil one. Help me to stand firm. It's Ephesians 6, standing firm in the faith. It's not being easily entangled with the sin that so inhabits our life. That's the idea. Do you remember Jesus saying to his disciples, can you not stay awake lest you fall into temptation? That's the idea. Pray that you would not be what? Taken over by temptation that can easily seize a man. That's the idea. And last of all, and deliver us from the evil one. And this is not just evil one just in terms of, hey, and protect us from sin. No, it's protect us from evil that resides in the world 
things that could happen to us, things that could happen to our family, things that could defame the name of Christ in my own life. It's really 2 Timothy 4.18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So it's meaning this. Lord, until I see you face to face, protect me from the snare of the evil one. Guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. Help me to live rooted and built up strength of faith, overflowing with thankfulness in the way that I've been taught. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Understand? Y'all got that? Capiche? Yes, if you have an eight-year-old boy who's out in the sand pit and he's playing, and in the midst of that, his truck breaks, and he starts wailing and crying, My truck! My truck! Let's say it's a five-year-old because it happens in my house all the time. <laughs> Bubba broke my truck. And in that moment, you say, look, it's okay. Matter of fact, we just got an inheritance from one of our family members recently for a million dollars. It's going to cover the truck. In that five-year-old mind, they can't comprehend the goodness. Understand? All they can focus on is what? My truck. Oh, my truck. (laughs) As we walk through our lives, may you and I not be so focused on our truck that we forget to see all the goodness that God has given us. That once you were in darkness and He's brought you into the kingdom of light, once you were removed from His presence and He's forgiven your sins, That he's called you daughter. That he's called you son. And then he doesn't merely leave you there, but he invites you into a conversation. A full-fledged encounter with God. And Jesus says, and this is how you pray on a daily basis to stay connected to him. And so, there it is. Now you go, okay, that's awesome. I'll go and I'll just start reciting this. Well, then you need to guard yourself against the verses we read earlier. Jesus did not give you this prayer simply for a liturgical thing you could stick on your mirror or that you could read in your car. He says, here is an example. So what's the example? Well, here's the deal. You ought to come before him every day. I read this last week, or actually I've been reading over the last four or five weeks on people like Luther, uh, Calvin, Augustine, and their prayer lives. And every one of them differ a little bit, but one of the things that they would say is that you ought to devote some time in the morning and some time in the evening for prayer. They have some means of, hey, you need to meditate before you ever pray, so take you a, a piece of Scripture. Psalm 23, just meditate it on it. And, and it's kind of the warm-up. Y'all remember calisthenics before you ever played the game? You're doing your jumping jacks, huh? You're getting ready, doing your stretches, huh? You got it? Get warmed up. Read a little piece of Scripture. Position your heart before Him. And then here's you an outline. So what should you do? Every time you come before the presence of a holy God, here's what you can do. You can adore Him and thank Him. You can confess your sins. Yes? You can ask for His protection. You can ask that the kingdom of God would come. And until it does, that you would guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. You can pray for other people, intercession. And then get this, you got one little line in there. One little piece that you can pray for yourself, right? Yes? 
It's probably a problem if our prayer life is only about us. That's why Jesus gave us that. Because for whatever reason, call it sin, call it arrogance, call it pride, whatever you want. Call it stubbornness, call it obstinance, or I like to call it ignoramus. Okay? We make this walk with God more about us than about Him. And you can't have a great prayer life, which all of us in here I think would say I'd love to have. Right? I don't know about you. I'm like, oh, I'd love to have a better prayer life. I'll tell you, for me right now, it's not the know-how. It's the lack of discipline. Yeah, that's what it is for me. I, I just, I'm not very disciplined in my prayer life. For some of you in here, you got all the discipline you need, all the drive, but you're like, I just need to know how to pray. Well, there you are. There you go. And so may you be blessed this week by knowing that you have access through Jesus Christ to a holy God. You can come before him with your prayers and petitions, your thanksgiving, your adoration, your confession, asking that his kingdom would come, his will would be done in your life. That he would protect you from the, oh, the flaming arrows of the evil one. That he would not get you with a, with a flaming arrow in the back, right? Amen? Okay, I hope you get that. Don't be ignorant is the goal, right? Let me pray for you, church. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and your graciousness. Thank you, Lord, that you're a holy God. And uh, Father, our goal is not to to simply speak to a God that we don't know, but to speak to a God who's personal and real. And Lord, I pray that as we grow in our lives as believers, we would know that one of the most essential principles of our growth is prayer, that it's essential to all that we do. And so, Father, help us to grow in you. Help us to draw confidence from the gospel, from the word, knowing that if it's in your word, we can pray it because you spoke it. And if you spoke it, it's already happened and it's going to happen. And so, Lord, help us to know that we have full access to you through your word, through prayer, and ultimately through your son, Jesus. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.